Let me read the scriptures from Luke. He entered Jericho, that would be Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief collector of taxes and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him, Jesus, joyfully. And when they saw it, i.e. the crowds, they all grumbled. He has gone into this house to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Ezekiel stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of the goods I give to the poor, of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lord Jesus, would you bless the reading of this word and the preaching of it. We pray in your name. Amen. So Jesus was passing through Jericho, which was a bustling city, a crossroads of commerce, a great place for the tax base. It's a nine-hour walk from Jerusalem. At least Google says that it is now a nine-hour walk from Jerusalem. To which Jesus had set his face. Actually, Luke told us in, in chapter 9 that Jesus has been setting his face towards Jerusalem this whole time. Which means he would go to the place where he would weep over the waywardness of his people. Which means that he would go where he would uh, turn over tables because of the injustice in the city. And he would go to a place where he would endure a kangaroo court, an unjust trial, and then a horrible death, and a place in which on the third day he would rise again in fulfillment of all the scriptures. But in Jericho, which again is not far away, behold, it says, a man named Zacchaeus. We know a couple things about him. He was a chief tax collector. Now, Zach, as I like to call him, didn't just work for the IRS, which would be a noble job. Tax collectors were literally the most distrusted and disdained people of the day within their Jewish culture. Romans, in their own oppressive regime, didn't pay tax collectors. What they did is they found um, the most corrupt and greedy people in town that were willing to, um, to, to, to exploit and extort funds from their own people, their friends, their family, their countrymen. Under Roman rule, they set their own salaries. Not only did they have to attract, extract tons of money in Roman taxes, they would plunder their people for even more. When you set your own salary and you are corrupt and ruthless and greedy, and you work for an imperialist government, that's an occupying force, you don't have many friends. None. And Zach was not just 
a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. Not just an extortionist, a national traitor, and a puppet of Rome. He was the head one. He was skimming off the top the people who were skimming off the top. This is what the other detail is about. That he was rich, which means he was good at it. Real good at it. Jesus has become relatively famous at this point. And so even though he's passing through, the crowds, crowds are starting to gather. And it's also people getting ready for Passover, so they're starting making way into Jerusalem anyway. And Jericho, not too far away, where people would come in, the crowds are starting to build as everyone prepares for the Passover in Jerusalem. And so there would be more than usual gathered there, not just the folks of Jericho, but others being so close. Zacchaeus must have heard rumors about this Jesus who started to be growing in popularity in significant ways as this itinerant rabbi. And the scripture says that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. And he had a problem. The crowd was too much for him. And he was small in stature. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He was short, but he wasn't just short. His stature is a double entendre there. He was short of social capital, of friends. Huge status in Rome, but wee status among his own people. That's why he had no friends. The local community used their only power they had over him to exclude him from their company. And I would say, in some ways, reasonably so. No one was going to let this cheater cut in line so that he could see Jesus. And so he climbed that sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. He ran on ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, Luke says. We know nothing of Zacchaeus' motivations here. The scripture doesn't tell us. Was it deep interest? A buzz on the street about this itinerant rabbi? Was it, can we tax an itinerant preacher? We just don't know. Either way, he had to gain some advantage over the crowd, so he did a very undignified thing, especially in the Middle East especially in the ancient Near East. He climbed the tree. And here's where Jesus enters in. We pick up an encounter between these two people. Scripture says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down. I love the drama of this, the bustle of the crowd, the giant of a teacher and a diminutive man who thinks he's a big man. He's a hated economic bully perched in a tree like a schoolboy. And Jesus comes to the place, looks up, calls him by name, tells him to come down. Now it's true or possible that Jesus would have known his name as a chief tax collector, but probably not. Do you know who the head of IRS is in the, um, let's say in Greensboro? How about Winston for that matter? No. You most likely don't know the chief of police or tax collector in another town. But whether it's supernatural or natural, Jesus has access to this information. And he calls Zacchaeus by name. 
Come on down, man. We're going to your house to eat today. I must stay at your house today, is what the scripture literally says. Now, I don't, I don't, you know, some of you like me fine, but if I come to you right after service and say, hey, we're going to your house today, bringing the entourage, ready to roll. You're, you southerners would be like, <laughs> you know. Don't worry, we're just going to follow you home. You don't know what, yeah, we'll be fine. Now, that wouldn't have just been shocking. I can't explain to you the level of, like, status and stature that was tied in Jesus' day to what hospitality looked like, what it meant, what was at stake, the shame of not being able to provide, the glory of being able to provide incredibly, with no notice. But it's more than that, because socially speaking, Zacchaeus could not have asked, asked Jesus for the space. He was a despised and wicked man. And he really was. The only thing I don't like about that story, the Bible, is that he just seems lonely and mean, or kind of mean but kind of lonely, and you have too much sympathy for him. No one reading this original text would have any sympathy for Zacchaeus whatsoever. Zach was a sinner in the first degree, a betrayer of his own people. And he was lonely, and for good reason. And frankly, I think that's actually somewhat right. People didn't go to his house unless they wanted or needed something from him. Somebody in the last service said, one of my preachers told me that since he was a wee little man, he had probably some bullies, some henchmen around him at all times. Kind of mafia style. Or the boss. But Jesus invites himself and says, hurry up, I mean, come down. We're gonna, I'm going to spend the day with you. We're going to watch the game. It was Super Bowl Sunday, by the way. <laughs> the reactions. The scripture says that he hurried down and received Jesus joyfully. It's a summary statement. A statement about Zacchaeus' welcome with Jesus. I can't imagine another religious leader in Jesus' day that would have given Zacchaeus the time of day. Pharisees hated tax collectors. But Rabbi Jesus created space for him, and in the irony of it all, actually created space for Zacchaeus in Zacchaeus' own space. This man, with no friends, and rightly so, is going to dinner with him. He created the space to do it. But that you hear that that was not the only reaction. There were the murmurs. They all grumbled, the crowd did. He's gone to be in the guest of the man who is a sinner. Jesus was breaking eating patterns for sure. As everyone grumbles, Jesus was once supposed to eat with this unclean man, this betrayer. He's breaking Jewish and cultural norms. Think of your favorite teacher or influence or person who you care about and respect most as a, a, a follower of Jesus. And think of the person uh, you think is the worst kind of person in the world. And then watch that person invite that other person over to eat and to be with them. That's what Jesus did. It's the way of Jesus. 
They thought that the one who would be to come, the Messiah, would be the one who would overthrow Roman oppression. And now he's cozied up to this very emblem of its tyranny. And he would come to overthrow all oppression. But he does it in a way that's very different than they expected. Can I say something about Christian engagement with issues of justice? Good. Thank you. You know this is dear to my heart. We fight for justice. We do not remain silent. We insist on what is true and good and beautiful and the dignity of all people. But we never, ever, ever condemn the unjust to their worst behavior. Even if it is right and true to prosecute them, we still never condemn them to these things. Even if they decide to reject a more beautiful way. Now, meanwhile, back at Zach's house, you're about to experience some amazing Lucan storytelling. Well, the, the grumblings of the crowd are still probably even outside. Luke pans the camera to the house, but then what he does is he, um, he lets the screen go dark. We don't know what's happening in between these couple of verses. It pops open a few hours later, and Jesus and Zach are reclined at the table amid the hustling servants that are, that are serving several courses of dinner. Um, again, the entourages are there, both Jesus's and Zacchaeus's. But there's clearly some conversation between these two main characters. There was an encounter with Jesus, and it's all off stage. We don't know how long between the verses. And at some point, Zacchaeus stands up because they recline at tables, so they're kind of laying down. And he stands up in some way, and he turns to Jesus and speaks to him. And he calls him Lord, and he uses the same word, behold. And something has happened. In my imagination, hopefully it's somewhat sanctified imagination, I see him in tears, but joyous tears, looking a little lighter, a little freer, maybe even new. He knows at least he has one friend now, the friend of sinners. But again, all this happens off stage. All this happens while the camera pans and the scene changes. Something has happened that is hidden to us except for the results of what happened in their conversation. Behold, Lord, Zacchaeus says, half of my goods I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. The little girl next to me said, four times? That's crazy talk. How does that happen? Two things are happening here. First, the greedy and fraudulent traitor is transformed into a generous giver. You might also just call him merciful. But he's also the chief corruption officer, and now he becomes the chief justice officer that is exacting that justice on his own self. Think about it. All your stuff. You liquidate it. You give half to the poor. And then you do an analysis of all the ways. And there's no economic system that doesn't have ways of corruption alongside of it. And you look at that and you go, I'm going to repay here and here and here and here as best as I can. Now his were a little more obvious. But we actually have a 
person in our church who's done this. Went back and like stole something from high school. And like these shops got like a check in the mail with the interest of what he stole in high school to give it back to them. And I'm sure the person that he stole from wasn't working there anymore. So how bizarre. That's what happened. Something happened beautifully there. Jerem Barr is one of my seminary professors and just an all-around great dude. Tells the story of his father-in-law, Mr. Bunsman. He was an incredibly generous man. Um, he was a mid-sized farmer in California, not a particularly wealthy farmer. But one year, he was actually audited by the IRS because he took so many tax reductions because of his generosity that, that they came after him. They thought he couldn't really give so much money away. The family actually has a letter sent by the IRS saying that his records were impeccable and they see that he was in fact a very generous man. No way. And I hope they kept this receipt too. But because he'd given so much money away, he still owed taxes because he went past the amount of money you can get away and get tax deductions for. Man, I hope they have that receipt right next to it. And so what did he do? He paid it because it was just and right to pay it. Whatever happened off stage with Zacchaeus is what happened to Mr. Bunsen. Zach now joins the throng of early Christians who didn't spend their money on themselves first. The church wasn't marked by temperate, prudent giving plans or self-protecting talk of stewardship. I didn't say stewardship. I said self-protecting talk of stewardship. Stewardship is a good thing. It was marked by an extravagant abandon after experiencing a time with Jesus that would play out toward God and neighbor. The other thing that happens, and this is really beautiful, the fraudulent man acknowledges his crimes without excuse. He repents and then restores what he's wrongly taken. You might say, he is becoming just. In the Old Testament, if you accidentally took something, you just had to pay it back. If you stole something or lost something and, uh, of someone else's and repented, told on yourself, then you'd pay it back plus 20%. If you stole something and got caught and had to be, um, had to be confronted about it, you paid back four times. So if you stole four sheep, you owed 16 sheep just the economy of Israel at the time. And that's what Zacchaeus owns. That I knew it was wrong, and I did it, and now I will repair what I have stolen. I am now caught, but in the best way. He does not minimize his sin. He doesn't re-narrate it to go, oh my gosh, the Roman Empire, they, you know, he doesn't do any of that stuff. He doesn't talk about the economy or its pressures. He doesn't blame his parents. No excuses, no posturing. Just owns what he's done. And he begins, I can't imagine that he could pay it all off. He went to the bank and just got all the money and then paid it off. Imagine he had to create a plan to figure out how to do this work of repair. To make amends. Fourfold. And there weren't just relational amends, but financial amends. And whoever his, his guys beat up to get the money. Maybe he had to call Dr. Luke to do some, you know, slings and stuff. I'm kind of joking, but this is the posture of this man. Wonder at what happened off stage. What 
makes someone do like do this. And here's the awesome part is that this passage is like 12, 13 verses after the rich young ruler passage, which was a guy who kept the law the whole time. And Jesus said, be generous with the poor. And he goes, and walks away sad. And then just a few verses later, you have a guy who's never, who hasn't kept the law at all, but has the same kind of encounter with Jesus. And he's like, well, dang it. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. And it's out of this joyful encounter with God himself that this happens. Jesus actually fills in the clarity gap of what happens on the scene. He tells us what happens beforehand by naming the result of what happens. Today, salvation has come to this house. It wasn't that when he did these things, salvation came to this house. He was describing the whole event. Salvation came to the house, and then this happened. The salvation came to the house, and truly, I don't mean, I don't, I, this was a despicable human being. Became man. The grace of God always precedes transformation. We are transformed by God's grace into faithful servants of all. The order matters. And then Jesus gives this kind of little Old Testament mashup of Daniel and Ezekiel. And he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this is the most important thing because now you see it when the grace of God is exploding off the page. The whole passage wasn't about Zacchaeus trying to see Jesus, but Jesus seeking Zacchaeus. That's the point. Zach was trying to see, but he got it already seen and sought Zacchaeus through the quarters of time. Who knows how it worked? And he says, guess who's coming to dinner? Me at your house. And when I'm through with you, you won't even know what you're doing or who you are. You'll be crazy with generosity. You'll be a madman for justice, even if it is exacted properly on you. Don't ever forget that Jesus was looking for you while you were in the sycamore tree. If you've been pondering the claims of Jesus, the likelihood that if you're seeking around, he's probably looking at you already. That Jesus himself is going to invite himself over for dinner. And it will change you. It will hurt. It will change you. But it will be for your good. And there, off stage, you will experience what Mr. Bunsby and Zacchaeus experience. The very hospitality of God. It's okay, sweetie. His forgiveness and his freedom. That's what happened off stage. The gospel of Jesus in the person of Jesus shows the grace of God that liberates a truly awful human being towards goodness. He found a wayward son and would bring him home. And please hear, it was truly unjust. It was truly wrong. That awful results of his sin. It should give us freedom to know that we live in the same economy of grace. 
That's what happened on stage. Conversion, regeneration, salvation, the gospel that makes you do crazy things. Only the grace of God could do what it did to Zacchaeus. It changes thieves into philanthropists, shoppers to sellers, savers to extravagant givers. It frees you up from trying to just like not spend enough so you don't feel guilty. It frees you to admit where you've been wrong or where you're working a wrong system and trying to rectify it. It's okay. It frees you from that. It's because you've received the unmerited kindness of God and so now your gifts are unmerited kindness. You you, um, mimic or imitate the unmerited kindness of God's grace that can transform us into servants and followers. And we don't have to piddle around with it anymore. We can give ourselves fully to it. Look, y'all, this is the longest sermon series I've done in 12 years at Redeemer. Six sermon series on giving. Thank you for that little... Thank you, Joshua. I did it like two years on those one time. Um, We're in it right now. Since January, we're talking about generosity of time and treasure and talent. And I'm glad we've done it. And I'm glad it's over. We're going to Philippians next week. Um, But as we launch a capital campaign and take real risks to sure up this old quirky building, to relieve funds for what we hope in the staffing plan and um, putting funds in the ministry experiences that we all can share together. But when we're talking about the fundraising, uh, for the love of the gospel, don't think that we earned it. For the love of the gospel, don't think that we earned it. Your elders and leaders have been, are a bunch of sinners who are up in the sycamore tree trying to figure out what Jesus is doing with us. But he sought us through lots of prayer, fasting, learning from other ministry models, figuring out what's, you know, you know how when you don't use a building for a while, say COVID, or you've been on vacation for two weeks, and you come back, and you're like, oh, I didn't know that was broken, you know, that kind of thing. We're not confident that we saw Jesus clearly. We are confident and hopeful that we, we've, we've met with Jesus because he sought us. That's where we are. And unless Jesus has done that and helps real sinners like your leaders see the beauty of the gospel for us and for our congregation and for our city and the world it's all folly because Jesus eats with real sinners finite and fallen and for some crazy reason he enjoys it he truly does here's the point of the passage the gospel frees our hearts to admit we are sinners, like really bad sinners, and to befriend sinners, really bad sinners, and to open our tables and talents and treasures for other sinners like us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us just remember Zacchaeus. Remember we are just like him, and that we would fight for justice in a way It includes welcome and grace, even if there are consequences for those we love. And free us. Free us from our stuff. We pray in your name.
Amen.